Dear Tim, the good gift that was entrusted to me, I now hand over to you. Guard this gift, grow it, and pass it on to those to come. church how you going welcome to sunday nights and a special warm welcome if you're new or visiting my name is monica carey i'm on staff here at bbc and i have the great honor of opening up our series tonight but before we do that let me pray for us lord i love the words of that last song that there truly is no other love that saves except the love of Jesus. Your love saves. And so God, tonight I pray that that truth would just permeate our hearts tonight. That it would be something that we would just grab hold of. And that we would lean into it and believe. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. So I ask tonight, God, as always, that you would have your way, have your way, have your way in this place, in our lives. In Jesus' precious name. And everybody said? Amen, amen. amen. So I want to ask you, what do you do when life gets hard because of the things that you believe in? More specifically, what do you do when you start taking hits for your allegiance to Jesus? Early on in my own Christian faith, um, my first experience um, experiencing um, someone have pushback for their faith was my friend Kelly. She was so instrumental in my becoming a Christ follower. And as many of you know, I grew up Catholic, like staunch Catholic. I had 12 years of Catholic schooling, um, went to Mass every Sunday, but had no real intimate relationship with God. I believed in God and knew that Jesus had died for my sins, but that truth had real, no real impact in how I was living my everyday life, especially when I was in high school. That is, until a co-worker named Kelly started um, inviting me to her church and talking to me about her faith in Jesus. And um, I know I've told this story before, but it kind of gives you some background and some context to my friendship with Kelly. She was the one who used to strategically have those Keith Green songs playing in her tape deck every time we went anywhere together in her car. Um, we worked part-time together at the same fancy French, French restaurant um, after school. And I remember so clearly the day that she had come into um, work to pick up her paycheck. And I saw her, and I'd been um, waitressing that day, and she came in, and we struck up a conversation, and I kind of blurted out, because we'd been hanging out a bit. I'd gone to her church a couple times. And I said, I was really embarrassed about it, and I said, I really want to know about Jesus, but I just don't know where to start reading in the Bible. And what's so interesting is that when in high school, when I started high school, I was a freshman in high school, we were made to buy this massive, huge Catholic Bible. It was super expensive, weighed like 50 pounds. Every freshman had to buy it. 
and it stayed in my locker for the whole four years I was in high school. Not one teacher ever asked us to bring it to class or to open it. So I passed it on unused, sold it to someone else who is probably still sitting in the same locker, I don't know. But it was just like, it was incredible. And she suggested that I start reading the book of John. So she left and I go back to work. And I'd been serving a large group of ladies during service and I accidentally spilled a drink and I think it was water on one of the customers. And I was really bummed because I thought, there's no way I'm gonna get a tip now. And when you're waiting tables, you live and die on your tips. But when they left, much to my surprise, in the distance, I could see that there was in fact money on the table. And as I got closer, I could see that my tip had been placed in a booklet. And when I picked it up, it was the book of John. And the hairs on the back of my neck, I was like, what, what is happening? And my first thought was, he wants me to know him. And from that moment on, church, I'm telling you, I was all in. Where you go, I will go. What you say for me to do, I will do. A month later, Kelly had quit her job and was going off to join YWAM, Youth with the Mission, in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado to do a DTS, a discipleship training school. She suggested that I come along too, and without hesitation, I too quit my job and packed my bags ready to go. For me, it was such a radical thing to do, and I can't explain it looking back other than I knew that knowing God in a deeper way was all I wanted to do. So for the most part, people around me were really, really supportive about my decision to go do a DTS, like my mom, bless my mother. Um, and I had the odd comment from friends like, what the heck are you doing? You sure YWAM isn't a cult? And no, I wasn't. This was way before the days of Google. I could, we didn't know. I, I had no idea. And I even had a friend say to me, you are the last person I ever thought who would ever be a Jesus freak, which gives you a clue of just how much of a party girl I was. And to quote Forrest Gump, that's all I'm going to say about that because my girls are in the audience. So yeah, no. But the real opposition was from Kelly's family. We were going to road trip together to Colorado. Kelly, her mom, her grandmother, and me. They were so lovely to me, but no jokes, the whole car trip there for two whole weeks, day in, day out, they gave Kelly so much grief about what we were doing was so wrong and they kept offering to turn back the car. They begged Kelly not to do this, and she spent much of the trip in tears. And then they turned their attention to me. <laughs> and the grandmother used to say in her quivering voice, are you sure you want to do this to your mother? Let me turn the car back. And I'd be like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And it actually really had me questioning my own newfound faith. It was drama-filled, man, till the day they dropped us off, which is a whole nother story in itself. And it's a miracle that we actually made it to that YWAM base in Colorado and didn't turn back, literally an act of God. 
So my question again is, what do you do when you start taking hits for your allegiance to Jesus? What do you do when you're living a life where people aren't encouraging you but discouraging you? Well, welcome to Dear Tim. We are in a moment in the book of 2 Timothy found right smack in the middle of the New Testament where Paul, the great apostle and writer of much in the New Testament, is in prison and he's not going to make it out. These are the last words of Paul, the very last letter he ever wrote because he's going to die after this prison sentence and he knows it. And I can't help but be touched when I read this letter because the context is so compelling. You see, Paul wrote several letters to people that he loved. He wrote 1 Timothy, Titus, and later 2 Timothy in that order. And during that time, Paul had been in and out of prison. But this last stint in prison was a whole different ballgame. You see, Paul was imprisoned in the... Mamertine prison in Rome. Now, the Mamertine prison is a dungeon in the ground, literally a circular pit, about 30 feet in diameter, with a hole at the top, a little larger than that of a manhole that you would find on the street. It was a place of incarceration for the criminals at the time of the Apostle Paul. Inside this pit was a stone floor and stone walls, and against one side, uh, one section of the circular pit, there was a door, a great large door that was able to be pulled up and then dropped back down in place. Now, prisoners would be dropped through the hole into the dungeon, up to about 30 to 35 prisoners. And then in order to make room for the next group of criminals, The door would be pulled open, and running alongside the cell was a city sewage system of Rome. And as the door was pulled open, the cell dungeon would fill up with sewage and drown all the prisoners and wash them back out. The door would shut, the place would be drained, ready for another 30 to 35 criminals. It's in these conditions, church, with the only light being the hole at the top, that Paul writes a letter to young Timothy, his protege. Timothy, who'd walked with, who he'd walked with and ministered alongside. Timothy, who had been entrusted with the leadership of the church in Ephesus, which wasn't an easy place. And when the gospel came to Ephesus, riots broke out. And in the culture of the day, there was animosity against Jesus. And in 64 AD, Nero, who was the emperor at the time, was an insane madman who torched the city of Rome. He set a match to it and burned it down. And not wanting to bear the public shame and the public wrath for doing this, he blamed it on this group called Christians for the burning of the city of Rome. And as a result, an avalanche of persecution broke out against Christ's followers that permeated the whole of the Roman Empire. And the Apostle Paul was eventually arrested because he was one of the leading spokesmen for the Christian faith. He was then taken back to Rome and dropped in that hole in the Mamertine prison. What a sobering picture. 
And as we start reading this letter to Timothy, we realize that young Timothy, and when we say young Timothy, at 2 Timothy, this letter, when it's written, he's like 40 years old, but I love how they keep calling him young Timothy. We realize that Timothy has been taking hits. People aren't cheering him on. And Paul, his mentor for the last 20 years, is in jail somewhere, and Timothy's in Ephesus struggling big time. So what's going to happen now? What is Paul going to say to dear Tim when life is hard and people aren't cheering you on? In these opening passage, we're going to see that Paul says over and over and over again, I'm reminded, I'm reminded, I recall, I'm reminding you, Timothy. Paul keeps bringing things up to young Timothy to remember. Why do that? But isn't that what we as parents when we send our, do when we send our kids out into the world? I know that's what I do. I say, remember that I love you. Remember your manners. Remember to make wise choices. I used to say that all the time. Remember to change your sheets when you're in uni. Remember to change your underwear. Remember to call home. We also do this as a society here in New Zealand. Anzac Day is all about remembering the sacrifice of brave soldiers who put their lives on the line for this country. We remember lest we forget. You see, Paul is going to remind Timothy of some things. And here's the thing, he's not gonna do it for Timothy to reminisce about the past. He is bringing things to mind to give him strength for the future. Paul is reminding him of things that will act as anchors and guideposts for Timothy. And Paul does this in just the opening verses. And forgive me if we spend some time here because I absolutely love it. And it says in 2 Timothy 1, very first verse, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my dear son, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now here's what's so fascinating to me about this intro, this introduction. I have to wonder, do they even know each other? I mean, of course they do. Timothy's traveled with Paul for much of Paul's ministry. They are deep friends. Paul calls Timothy my beloved son. In other passages, he says, I have no one else like him. So if they're that tight, why is Paul taking so much time to introduce himself? I mean, parents, do you do that with your kids when you call them on the cell phone? Hey, Bubba, it's your mom. You know, your mom, born in Orange County, California, oldest of four, wife to your father, mother to your sister. And they're like, I know, I know, mom, no, no, we don't do that with our own kids. So why the long introduction, Paul? I don't think Paul is doing it to remind Timothy of who Paul is. I think Paul is doing it to remind Timothy who Timothy is. You see, Paul understands something that Timothy needs to get. See, all you have to do in an introduction is to say your name, Paul, to Timothy, what's up? I mean, James did it in his book. He says, James, greetings, and then he starts. But in these opening passages, someone else's name shows up three times. Did you see it? Christ Jesus. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I love that Paul puts Christ in front because that's his title. The Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah, the king, the hero of the story. That is who you are surrounded by, Timothy. And he's rooting, and this is what I love, he's rooting Timothy's identity in majesty. I'm gonna say that again. He's rooting Timothy's identity in majesty. See, Paul, an official emissary from King Jesus, and you are my son, and that same Jesus is our Lord, Timothy. And he goes on to say, and he goes on to say in verse three, and I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my tears, recalling your tears, remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I, I am persuaded now lives in you also. I love that. Paul says, I thank God as I remember you, Timothy, because when I remember you, I don't see a failure, I don't see a disappointment, I don't see a struggler. What I see, Timothy, is a gift from God. Now imagine being Timothy getting this letter from Paul. You see, Timothy, unlike Paul, struggled with his health and he was prone to illness. He also tended to be introverted and shy. And he's been in Ephesus where people have been opposing him, questioning his authority, questioning whether or not he's worthy for, of the position he is in. And he gets this letter from his mentor. And maybe he's not sure what Paul is going to say. And maybe he's afraid that it will say, dude, what's going on in Ephesus? What the heck? But Timothy reads, every time I think of you, I thank God that he made you, Timothy. Son, your identity is rooted in majesty. You are not just a struggling kid, but a child of the Most High God. I love that. See, Paul is trying to give Timothy some perspective. You see, Paul understands that our identity, how we see ourselves, at our core, determines what we do with our life. And how we see ourselves will be the lens that we look through that will influence every decision that we make. You know, at the women's ministry that runs here on a Wednesday morning, we did this exercise where we wrote down the first unguarded word that came to mind right after we wrote down our full names. Unguarded, what's the first word that comes to mind? And it was so eye-opening what some of the women wrote. Blessed, grateful, hurting, confused, unloved, unwanted, fearful, weak. I don't know, it really got to me. You see, how we see ourselves would determine our level of confidence when we walk into a room or how we talk to people, what we believe about ourselves to be true. 
because how we see ourselves is how we will engage with the world. Paul says, I am who I am by the will of God. And I love this next part, going back to verse three, he says, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And Billy Graham calls this the gospel in miniature. It's a promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. You see, you and I don't earn a promise. We don't work our way into a promise. The good news of heaven is that God is promising to give you and I life. But the assumption is, is that we don't have it and that something is broken inside of us. And yet God is telling us, I will give you life. What a promise. And that life is not in what you do. It's rooted in what he's done. It's life in the person of Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel church is that in Jesus, our identity is received, not achieved. That is such good news. And Paul says to Timothy that I'm praying for you, son, night and day. I'm praying for you and I long to see you. Can you hear the emotion in it? I long to see your face, Timothy. And when I do, I will be filled with joy. I think Timothy's a bit like me. I love hellos, but I stink and hate goodbyes. I do. I hate it. And I think Timothy hated goodbyes too, because Paul says, I remember your tears. <laughs> and I don't know if it was a joke between them. Remember when you were crying, Timothy? I don't know. Remember you crying? I didn't cry, but you cried. So I don't know if that was kind of a thing between them but I love how he says that I remember your tears. I mean, how wonderful to get a letter like that from a father figure, mentor. And I imagine it would be so life-changing. Timothy, your identity is rooted in majesty and your stability is rooted in community. I want to remind you, Timothy, that you're loved, that you are not isolated in your shame, you are not isolated in your struggles or your difficulties or your failures or your weaknesses. You are not isolated, but surrounded. I remember hearing Ravi Zacharias talk about what it's like when he ministers in the Middle East. And he's in a room filled with Middle Eastern men. And he tells the story of the prodigal son, the son that dishonored his father and he said that many of the men have never heard the story before. And when he starts talking about the son coming home after he squandered all his inheritance and he's about to beg his father if he could be his servant, the men in that room all anticipate that the father will reject the son and most likely kill him. And Ravi says when he gets to that moment where the father sees his son a long way off, he says you can hear a pin drop every single time. And he, say, and he says this, I begin to tell them that the father runs to the son, embraces him, and kisses him. And Ravi says the power in the room, there is complete silence but you can feel the longing and the yearning for them, from them for that. Because Middle Eastern men don't talk like that and they don't do that. At Serious Coffee, Jim Hearn, a, a mighty man of God who died a couple years ago, used to end his teachings by praying a benediction blessing over us as women. 
And you would always hear when he did that an audible groan and an exhale from the women every time. You see, we all long for affirmation from a father figure, a parent figure, um, an authority figure, a mentor. And Paul is reminding Timothy that he is not isolated but surrounded. Hebrews 12 says that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, brave men and women of the faith who have gone before us on whose shoulders we stand. See, our stability is in community. We are all built to thrive in community because we are better together. Are you struggling or discouraged? Get around some other believers who can encourage you. That is why gathering together like this is so important, so we can spur each other on in Jesus' name. And Paul reminds Timothy that he comes from a family line of Christ's followers. And he says in the verse, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. Yeah. Some of you here tonight, not yet, Paul is wanting Timothy to pull back the lens and to look at his story, that he comes from a line of people who were also faithful in a difficult day. And Timothy doesn't have to look very far to his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. And for some of you tonight, you have that, a legacy of your family line of Christ followers. What an honor. What an honor. Some of you had grandparents and parents who served in the military, men and women who faced their fears so that you could face yours. What an honor. For me... On my mom's side of the family, I had believing, spirit-filled grandparents who prayed for me daily. Now, here's a photo of their 50th wedding anniversary, and they were renewing their vows surrounded by, yes, 15 children. They were good breeding stock. (laughs) They renewed their vows, and they all got to see it. As a kid, I used to hear them pray, and my brothers and I would sneak in to have a look. And there they would be, on their knees, rosary beads in one hand, and they'd be holding hands with the other. They were married for over 70 years. I proudly stand on the shoulders of their faith. My grandmother prayed for this. I remember she prayed for me one time, this is not in my notes, but she said, because in, in Catholic world, um, especially the way I grew up in, in the Latin Catholic world, whenever you would leave, um, especially my grandparents who had such mana, and that's the only way I can put it, real mana, and even in the community. But when we would leave, it was tradition that you always went and you said, Grandma, I'm leaving now, can you bless me? And they would always bless us before we left. I remember one time she grabbed my face and she said, I see you standing on a map in some country, and you are ministering to people. I don't know what country that is, but go with God. I've never forgot that. Amazing, eh? And I know for many of you here, that isn't your story. That isn't your history. You lurk back on your family line, and it was not like that. You don't have a lineage of faith. But guess what? 
It starts with you. You get to be the first one. And when you've put your faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ and commit your life to following him, you are grafted into the family, Romans 11 says. All the ancient ancestors in the Bible who Paul refers to become our family too. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Their family. People who were flawed and imperfect, discouraged, fearful, persecuted, but who God used anyway to show himself mighty in their weakness and for his glory and his renown. What a legacy you and I have in the faith. And the last reminder that Paul gives Timothy is that you have fire in you, Timothy. Your ability comes from your unity with the spirit of the living God. And he says this, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God does not, um, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. See, Paul is reminding Timothy that you have an identity that is rooted in majesty. You have the stability of community. You are loved. You have a glorious spiritual history. And you have the ability that comes from the unity of the Spirit of God. So, dear Tim, fan into flame that gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The authority that was given to you, Timothy, step into it, son. Don't shy away from it. Don't back away from it. Step into it and don't be half-hearted about it. Stand strong in it, dear Tim. So how can Timothy do it? How can we do it? How can we stand on all that God has called us to be even in a difficult day? It's because God has given us a spirit of, God has not given us a spirit of timidity. And I love how it says that. God has not given us a spirit of timidity and he's talking to Timothy. See the name in, in, in the timidity. His spirit gives us power, love, and self-control. Did you hear that? We have the spirit of the living God inside of us who uses weak things to shame the strong. We have a love that defies all understanding, a love that hung on the cross, took our shame and sin, died and rose again, defeated death so that we could have life. Stand strong in that, Timothy, that crazy, mind-bending truth. Stand strong in that reality. So, what do you do, church? When life gets hard, or when you see that your family doesn't appreciate your newfound faith? What do you do when you go to work and nobody cares about what you believe in or what you think about that? What do you do when you feel God stirring you to invite your neighbor to church and you're scared? Remember, remember, bring to mind daily that your identity is rooted in majesty, that the people of God love you and will pray for you and cheer you on as you step out in faith, that you come from a godly line that gave their lives to deliver this very word to you. 
and you have the very Spirit of God living in you. You grip onto those truths with everything you have, step into it, immerse yourself into it, and fan the flame. And you will rise, and the world will be a better place. Amen? How fitting is it that we now move into a time of communion together? If I could have the band come out, that would be great. See, Paul is going to close chapter 2 in 2 Timothy with this, remember Jesus Christ. And that's what we're doing right now. We will remember that on the night that he was crucified, he took the bread from the Passover table and he blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took the cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and he said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Do this in memory of me. So you are invited now to come to the communion table. Come and partake and all are welcome. And as you take the elements in your own time, the worship team is going to sing a song that says, I am who you say I am. And I'm praying that you let the words wash over you, that you let the words of the truth of this song take root in your soul, that your identity is rooted in majesty, that you are so loved that you are so loved. Let the words wash over you and let it minister to those hurt parts in you. And I love the words, I'm chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Whom the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. I am a child of God, yes I am. And in my father's house, there is a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Why don't you come down?